Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the coronavirus is declared to be an official pandemic by the World Health Organization, the United States proves to be a drag on testing, treatment, and impact on the world economy. Without these kinds of social measures like universal health care and child care policies and paid leave policies and sick leave policies and all the rest, the United States is dangerously exposed. And as Democratic Party elites rush to coronate Joe Biden as their nominee, progressives raise the alarm about evidence of election fraud and voter suppression that is once again cheating the insurgent candidacy of Bernie Sanders. The Democratic Party, the institution, and the DNC are willing to lose to Trump. They'd rather lose to Trump than have Bernie Sanders be their candidate because Biden appears incapable of winning an election against Donald Trump. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, just as the U.S. presidential race enters a critical phase, the number of coronavirus cases in the United States is rising, with more than 1,200 infected and 36 deaths. At the same time, the World Health Organization is designating the virus as a pandemic with cases in 118 countries and territories. In the past two weeks, the number of cases reported outside China has increased about 13-fold, and the number of affected countries has almost tripled. Meanwhile, on the front lines of the crisis, the National Nurses United Union held a day of action on Wednesday, March 11th, to bring attention to the dangers faced by healthcare workers and the lack of supplies and workforce needed to deal with the crisis. Executive Director Bonnie Castillo spoke at an action in Oakland, California. We have had so many drills. We have been through H1N1, SARS, MERS, Ebola, and there is no excuse whatsoever for our hospitals not to have the protections that our nurses need in order to do the care that they are expertly trained to do. And I will end this with saying we will not remain silent. We will speak up. We are not, we are going to let our patients and our community know what is happening and we in turn need your support to ensure that the hospitals stay safe as centers of healing and not become potential vectors of spreading a very contagious virus. With no comprehensive federal policy on coronavirus in the United States, private businesses and organizations, as well as states and local governments, have been taking matters into their own hands, leading to the cancellation until further notice for example, of the National Basketball Association games, total cancellation of the popular college March Madness basketball tournament, and here in D.C., Mayor Miro Bowser declared a state of emergency and a public health emergency this week. The district identified six new cases as of Wednesday, bringing the total to 10. Canceled or postponed events in D.C. include 
some activities that are a part of the annual Cherry Blossom Festival. Members of Congress weighed in with several hearings this week, during one of which Representative Katy Perry of California insisted that the head of the CDC commit to making all testing and treatment for coronavirus to be available to everyone free of charge if needed, regardless of lack of insurance or inability to pay. And while the logistics of that verbal guarantee are still not clear, no announcement had more impact than President Trump's Wednesday night scripted speech from the Oval Office, during which he announced a one-month travel ban from Europe, excluding American citizens and excluding the United Kingdom. The speech included many elements such as a ban on cargo that were later retracted, but nonetheless the overall impact was to send stock markets into another deep dive on Thursday, with the market losing 10% of its value. More on the global impact of the coronavirus after headlines with author and historian Gerald Horn. Also on Thursday, a federal judge ordered the immediate release of U.S. Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning, who spent most of last year in prison for refusing to testify against WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Federal Judge Anthony Trenga ordered the release, saying that Manning's testimony was no longer needed, and after Manning's legal team disclosed that she had been hospitalized after a suicide attempt this week. The court says Manning still owes a quarter of a million dollars in fines for refusing to testify. In the 2020 presidential election, ahead of Sunday's Democratic presidential primary debate between former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders, a coalition of youth advocacy organizations on Thursday issued a pair of demands pressuring the Democratic National Committee and moderators to prioritize key progressive issues of concern to young people that they say have not received much attention at past debates. The groups behind the demands are Alliance for Youth Action, United We Dream Action, Sunrise Movement, March for Our Lives, Dream Defenders, Next Gen America, and Student Action, some of which have endorsed Sanders. More on the election, evidence of voter manipulation and voter suppression later in the show. And finally, in culture and media, the 16th annual New African Film Festival featuring dozens of contemporary African offerings is underway until March 19th at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. As part of the festival, there is what is believed to be the very first feature film from Djibouti titled Dalinyaro, which means youth, by director Lula Ali Ismail. It follows three 18-year-old young women as they decide whether to stay in Djibouti or go to France for college. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
feel like a chip on my shoulders. I feel like I'm losing my focus. I feel like I'm losing my patience. I feel like my thoughts in the basement. Feel like I feel like you're miseducated. Feel like I don't wanna be bothered. I feel like you may be the problem. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. F the world, the world is ending. I'm done pretending. If f you, if you get offended, I feel like friends been overrated. I feel like the family been faking. I feel like the feelings are changing. Feel like my daughter compromised and jaded. Feel like you wanna screw and that's how I made it. Feel like I ain't feeling you all. Feel like removing myself. No feelings involved. I feel for you. I've been in the field for you. It's real for you, right? That feel like ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for more international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And what a week in D.C., Gerald. President Trump addressed the, the nation from the Oval Office on Wednesday night. And after that, the stock market took another dive. And I wanted to know about the other reactions from Europe and around the world. Well, first of all, in Brussels, the capital of the European Union, uh, Trump's decision to ban travel from Western European nations, part of the European Union, except for Britain, which has exited the European Union, is interpreted as another political slap at Brussels, part of this ongoing competition between Brussels and Washington. And then it has a leak insofar as U.S. nationals apparently can travel from Western Europe, which means that they could be carrying the virus. And, of course, there are inadequate measures at U.S. airports to ascertain whether or not they are, in fact, carrying this virus. It seems to me, at least, that there is a gathering sentiment in Western Europe, and I would dare say around the world, that given the preeminent role that the United States plays in the capitalist world, this healthcare crisis has revealed that there needs to be more attention as to who leads the United States of America, given the role that this country plays in virtually every economy on planet Earth. Now, this is nothing new. Recall that about 200 years ago, Western European nations decided that Napoleon Bonaparte had gotten too big for his britches, and they united to dislodge Napoleon Bonaparte. And it may be too soon to say that Mr. Trump is the 21st century version of Napoleon, but certainly sentiments are pointing in that direction in light of this catastrophic healthcare crisis that we all are now facing. And I think as well that here in the United States, uh, there's a gathering sentiment that the United States is being exposed as a giant with a feet of clay. That is to say, Without an adequate uh, sick leave policy, without an adequate child care policy or elder care policy or universal health care policy or paid leave policy, all of which are in place to a greater or lesser degree in Western Europe and many other countries beyond Western Europe, the United States is obviously disadvantaged in terms of confronting this health care fiasco. The GOP, the Republican Party, is now scrambling you even have certain voices in the Republican Party which have been forced to talk about at least uh, not Medicare for all, but Medicare for one disease, <laughs> that is to say, uh, having some sorts of public health 
measures to somehow contain and corral this disease. What's striking to me, at least looking historically, is that oftentimes historians speak of class struggle as the motive force of history or war as the forcing house of history. But if you look at the history of infectious diseases, for example, the Black Death in Europe in the 14th century, that led to a spectacular rise in anti-Semitism, which changed the face of Europe. And even if you look at the United States of America, recall that not so long ago you had the rise of so-called sewer socialists in Milwaukee. That is to say that the rich oftentimes were reluctant to pay for sewers in poor neighborhoods until they realized that sewers were useful in helping to contain disease in poor neighborhoods that could quickly spread to rich neighborhoods, which led to sewers being constructed in poor neighborhoods. And I'm hoping that there will be a growing recognition that universal health care ultimately is the way to corral and contain these kinds of diseases. I should also say that uh, there are a number of issues that have yet to be Address. I mean, I haven't seen any articles yet on what's going to happen in U.S. prisons, for example, which in many ways are petri dishes and incubators for all manner of viruses and disease. Are prisoners going to be allowed to die in prison if there is an outbreak, an epidemic of the virus? Uh, you know that the billionaire investor Warren Buffett has oftentimes spoken that oftentimes said that you don't realize who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Well, the tide has gone out, and we now see that the United States is exposed as swimming naked. And that is to say, without these kinds of social measures like universal health care and child care policies and paid leave policies and sick leave policies and all the rest, the United States is dangerously exposed, and we may be on the brink of a real catastrophe. Also related to the coronavirus, Code Pink was out protesting in front of the U.S. Treasury this week in Northwest D.C. because of the continued effort by the Trump administration to ratchet up sanctions on Iran, which is denying Iran the type of medicines and medical assistance they need to combat the coronavirus in that country. And which is considered the kind of epicenter of the virus in the Middle East. And I just remembered also that uh, I was sent news about Cuba developing medicines that are, I think, are being used, were being used in China to combat the virus there. And that is assisting a lot of countries around the world. Well, I think we may have to come to the conclusion that U.S. foreign policy is presently constructed with these sanctions being imposed on various nations is, is consistent with the health of the world's population. It's not only the fact that sanctions are weakening Iran's ability to confront this virus. I made a mention a moment ago about prisons. Well, right now, as we speak in Zimbabwe, which is also subjected to punishing and pulverizing U.S. sanctions, prisoners are being released from prison, not only because there is not enough food to feed them, but also, I should say, that in Zimbabwe, the healthcare system, as a direct result of sanctions, is in the process of collapse. And I think that it's long past time for those in Washington to recognize that by 
punishing these countries, including Venezuela and Cuba, you're basically weakening the health of world humanity, and that can only redound to the detriment, ultimately, of the health of the people of the United States of America. So, you mentioned Venezuela, and also in this week in D.C., Code Pink disrupted a speech being given by Elliot Abrams. He was basically telling this audience, this conservative audience, maybe bragging a little bit that the sanctions taken, draconian sanctions that are destroying the economy, the health, the livelihood of Venezuelans is to the point where Venezuela may not be able to earn any money from its oil industry. So sanctions were on the mind of peace activists here in D.C. in terms of Venezuela and Iran. Well, that's not the only scandal emerging from South America. Recall that just a day or two ago, there was a study released from MIT in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, who has suggested that when the Organization of American States, based in Washington, D.C., by the way, claimed that Evo Morales and his political party had engaged in hanky-panky and dirty tricks to basically steal, quote-unquote, the election in Bolivia just a few months ago, that this was all fraudulent. This was all a fake. This was all made up by the OAS, but it led to a coup against Evo Morales, driving him into exile, leading to the deaths of dozens of his political supporters. And I'm afraid to say that I have yet to see a mention of this particular study in the corporate media. I read about it in Counterpunch. Right. Well, it is overlapping with a lot of the stories that we're talking about today in terms of our own election and some of the what you call hanky panky might be happening that is basically disenfranchising communities, especially communities of color and young people. So all these issues are connected. And I'm glad you were able to bring in the international dimension so that, you know, we can't forget that we're a part of the world, even though Trump wants to build these walls and the cyber walls and all these other walls that they they think will keep Americans separate. But the coronavirus is proving that we are not separate. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
morning, everybody. My name is Kathy Dennis, and I have been an RN for 22 years, and I work at a Dignity Hospital as a bedside nurse. I am a member of the California Nurses Association, National Nurses United, and I actually sit on the board of directors. We are gathered here today to spread awareness and provide education on the COVID-19 to our members, patients, and public. This virus is just the latest in a long string of infection diseases we have dealt with in recent years. And each time, CNA, NNU is forced to bring up the same concerns with our hospitals. Each time there is a new health care crisis, hospitals fail to implement the necessary protections. We want our hospitals to be proactive in times like these and not reactive. Nurses want all hospitals and healthcare facilities to follow the precautionary principle, which means we should not wait until we know for sure that something is harmful before we take action to protect people's health. What does this preparedness look like from the eyes of a bedside nurse? Implementing screening protocols to promptly identify patients with symptoms and travel or exposure history. We are happy to report that this week our hospital, Dignity Health, began this and um, after we brought the concerns to them, they are now screening uh, patients and family members at the hospital and encouraging them to go home if they are sick and not uh, needing hospital care. Ensuring prompt isolation of patients with possible or suspected cases of COVID-19. These patients need to be protected, placed in airborne infection isolation rooms whenever possible until COVID-19 is ruled out or the patient has recovered. We need to maintain our airborne infection isolation rooms. Recently, we had to build new airborne isolation rooms. We need to provide personal protective equipment to our healthcare workers, all our healthcare workers, not just nurses, who are providing care to those patients with possible COVID-19 infections. This personal protective equipment should include N95 respirators, plus eye covers, plus what we call the powered air purifying respirators, known to medical professionals as PAPRs, as well as gowns, gloves, and other protective equipment for droplet and aerosol precautions. This equipment needs to be easily accessible to nurses and not locked away in a manager's office. The hospital stocks supplies for what they need at the moment, so they are unprepared when a healthcare crisis occurs. Taking just-in-time approach may work for the automotive industry, but in the healthcare industry, this puts patients, nurses, and our communities at risk when an outbreak happens. Profits over patients has no place in healthcare. We know that our nurses can care for the potential surge of the COVID-19 patients, but we need our hospitals to be transparent and incorporate our input, the bedside nurse, into the preparedness plan. Since we are the peoples on the front line at the bedside, protecting ourselves, our patients, and our communities. As nurses, we are honored to have this responsibility to care for your loved ones. 
I would now like to introduce one of our ICU nurses, Jessie, to say a few words about what's going on in her area. Hi, my name is Jessie Sonicoy. I'm an ICU RN at Mercy General Hospital. I've been an RN for over 11 years here at Mercy General Hospital. I'm proud to be a member of the California Nurses Association and a member of our professional practice committee, which enables me to stand up and advocate for what's best for my patients. With COVID-19 present in our community, we must take this very seriously. Our healthcare system must develop a plan to combat the spread of COVID-19. One patient can have a huge impact on our system. For example, one patient at UC Davis led to the self-quarantine of 36 nurses and 88 healthcare workers. Their lack of readiness is creating an unsustainable healthcare staffing crisis. In fact, in times like these, we need the hospital to be increasing the number of staff from housekeepers who keep our units clean and sanitized to the nurses who provide the care at bedside. We are hearing stories from our colleagues in the emergency department that they need additional staff to help with the increased screening protocols. We urge our hospital to increase staffing levels as a preventative measure on all units. In order for us to properly care for COVID-19 patients, we need hospitals to communicate with staff about their emergency response plan. We need hands-on education on our units so nurses can protect ourselves, our patients, and our families. Our hospitals have failed to provide the hands-on training. The posters and online learning are not enough. As for my unit, there have been no mandatory meetings regarding our plan for COVID-19 patients, despite being the designated unit to receive critically ill COVID-19 patients in our hospital. This is cause for concern. We do not want to be left with the shortage of nurses, and this is why we need more training and education. Nurses need personal protective equipment readily available on our units, not only so we can safely care for COVID-19 patients, but so we can safely care for tuberculosis patients. When PPE is not easily accessible to nurses in a time of emergency, a nurse is forced to make a decision. Do I care for my patient without the proper safety equipment and risk exposure, or do I go searching for the safety equipment causing a delay in patient care, meaning life or death for my patient? Our ask is simple and reasonable. One, hands-on education and training. Two, personal protective equipment readily available on all units for all staff. Three, increased staffing levels on all units. We want all healthcare workers and all in healthcare in all in healthcare settings to have proper protections and training in order to protect the health of our communities. As nurses, we are here to advocate what is best what is in the best interest for our patients and the public we need the hospital to be transparent with staff educate and train provide us with the proper protective equipment and increase staffing thank you Great. what do we want safety and when do we want it now what do we want safety and when do we want it now Sanctions are killing people!
and are worsening the coronavirus. Please tell people inside, lift the sanctions now. It's through the Treasury Department that the heavy hand of the United States is put on companies not only in the U.S., but companies around the world to tell them not to trade with Iran, to tell them not to trade with Venezuela, to tell them not to trade with Cuba, to tell them it is illegal to trade with North Korea. And so that's why we're here in front of the Treasury Department. It's mass murder through economic warfare. It's collective punishment on civilians whether it's in Iran, in Venezuela, in Cuba, or in North Korea, or any of the 30 countries sanctioned by the United States. The sanctions need to be lifted everywhere, especially right now that we're facing a global pandemic because of the coronavirus. Lift the sanctions now! Lift the sanctions now! Lift the sanctions now! Lift the sanctions now! We are here to say that the best thing that the U.S. can do is to use this opportunity when the world community is fighting this disease to say we are going to be part of the solution. We're going to lift the sanctions. We're going to allow Iran to sell its oil on the international market so that it would have the resources to fight this disease. We're going to join the world community and stop punishing governments by strangling their economies, whether it's Iran or Venezuela or Cuba or North Korea. Now is a time that countries need resources to help their people. Iran, once they were able to, took the testing kits from the World Health Organization to find out what of their population had coronavirus so that they could do everything in their power to treat them. They might have acted a little bit too late, but they did take the World Health Organization test kits. Guess who refused the testing kits from the World Health Organization? Donald Trump! What are you trying to do here, Madea? So we're trying to show that this is a danger zone because the Treasury Department is putting the lives of millions of people at danger because of the sanctions. And when they are cutting off the resources the countries need to fight this pandemic, um, then this is a dangerous situation. Uh, people's lives are in the balance. People are dying every day already from this disease, but by keeping the resources from countries like Iran that they need for their healthcare system, we are literally killing people every day. And because it's the Treasury Department that uh, is the one that enforces this, I'll be right back. With the Sanctions now! Sanctions are for a war! Sanctions are for a war! We need to end these sanctions against Iran! They're spreading the coronavirus by not having the materials they need to fight this disease. 
Saudis are afraid to do business with Iran because they're afraid of being sanctioned by the U.S. itself, because the U.S. threatens that and will, in fact, do that. So Iran is an epicenter, and the coronavirus does not remain within Iran's borders. The entire Middle East is war ravaged and destroyed with so many already healthcare issues and lack of sufficient healthcare. It's a perfect storm for the coronavirus. And we here in the U.S., we have a responsibility for those who have been killed from the coronavirus, from not not being able to be properly dealt with in Iran, from the people who died before that in Iran, from cancer and epilepsy, unable to get the life-saving medications that they needed because of U.S. sanctions. We are responsible for the tens of thousands of deaths in Venezuela from U.S. sanctions. And now, as we have this global pandemic, as we see the urgency As coronavirus is spreading across the U.S., it is imperative that we immediately and finally stop this uh, program of economic warfare. You just heard the voices of Ariel Gold, Medea Benjamin, and Leonardo Flores, all of Code Pink, rallying outside the U.S. Treasury Department on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020, to protest U.S. sanctions on Iran and other countries that are a form of warfare on those countries and are interfering with those countries' ability to fight the coronavirus. And before that, you heard the voices of Kathy Dennis and Jesse Senafoy participating in the National Nurses United Day of Action, also on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. Special thanks to journalist Ford Fisher of News to Share for his reporting outside the Treasury Department. And thank you to KPIX, the CBS local affiliate in the San Francisco Bay Area for their audio of the National Nurses United Day of Action that was held in rally that was held in Sacramento, California. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Many suggestions and documents written Many directions For the aid that was given They gave us Pieces of silver And pieces of gold Tell me who paid Reparations on my soul Many fine speeches This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this segment, I'm joined by Dan Kovalik. He is a human rights and labor lawyer, peace activist, and author of several books, including his latest, No More War, and the critically acclaimed The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. 
He joins us from Pittsburgh. Welcome to On the Ground, Dan. Thank you, Esther. Well, I wanted to talk to you today because you're one of the few commentators I've heard speak about the discrepancy in exit polling and other voting irregularities during the Democratic primaries that appear to work against the Bernie Sanders campaign. And maybe some of that confusion was cleared up this week when Sanders himself said that his campaign's own polling indicates that voters overwhelmingly are supportive of his major platform planks, including Medicare for All, but believe that Biden could best beat Trump. So I wanted to you to tell us what are some of these instances so far of the exit polls not matching the election results? Yeah, so first of all, we can start with Massachusetts, where the exit polls were very skewed. Uh, that is, that Bernie Sanders lost over 8% of what he would have gotten had the exit polls, or had the actual count match the exit polls, and uh, Biden picked up an additional 8%. And this is well above uh, the margin of error for these polls. And it has to be mentioned because people may say, well, who cares? You know, polls aren't accurate. But actually, they are quite accurate. And actually, the U.S., in particular, the USAID, uses such polls to detect election fraud in other countries. Right. right? So if this were Bolivia, for example, where they claimed there was election fraud, and now, by the way, we know that wasn't true. The Washington Post just reported, I think it was last week, uh, that MIT did a study saying those claims were untrue. But if this were Bolivia or this were Venezuela, and we saw these types of exit poll discrepancies, like in Massachusetts, like in uh, South Carolina as well, the U.S. would cry foul and say that there was probably fraud in that election. So as you mentioned, the making this comparison between Bolivia and the United States, some uh, journalists and activist colleagues were out in front of the Organization of American States in Northwest D.C. on Tuesday. And that was uh, Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone and members of Code Pink confronting Luis Almagro about the intervention in countries like Bolivia where they do not monitor the elections here in the United States. Let's hear what he had to say, and then I want to ask about South Carolina. If there is a major discrepancy between exit polls and final results, that is a potential sign of tampering or fraud. We're talking about fraud by the USAID's standards here, and that's why we need observers from the OAS. Now, it's true that the OAS accused the Bolivian elected government of Evo Morales of a discrepancy between the computer quick counts and the final results, and that those claims by the OAS were completely discredited by researchers here at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and by researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Okay, they were totally discredited. Come apply those same standards here, where, honestly, if Texas were a socialist Latin American country, the CIA would have already installed a brutal right-wing dictator like Janine Añez in Bolivia. Come here and see what's going on in Texas, where the Dallas County Commissioner somehow managed to lose 44 flash drives from 44 precincts. How do you lose those flash drives? Were they disappeared by gamma rays blasted by Vladimir Putin's brain into Dallas, where Dallas County lost 10% of its entire vote totals? Where are the votes? 
we want to know, and we want to know why the OAS is consistently sending election monitors to countries targeted for regime change, but not sending them here. So that was Max Blumenthal speaking outside the OAS where uh, he and other members of the Gray Zone and members of Code Pink had just confronted Luis Almagro about the fact that they do intervene in countries like Bolivia on behalf of regime change plans by the United States, but do not monitor the elections here in the United States. I am Esther Varum and this is On the Ground. And I'm speaking to Dan Kovalik, human rights lawyer and author. And Dan, I was going to ask you to next talk about South Carolina and what were the discrepancies there between the exit polls and the actual vote results. So in South Carolina, uh, again, uh, Biden's vote count increased by 8.3% above the exit poll. New Hampshire, Buttigieg got 12% more than the exit poll showed. I mean, these are incredibly inflated vote counts over the exit polls, way above the margin of error, which is usually 3 to 4%. And by the way, this happened to Sanders in 2016. Again, in Massachusetts, there was about an 8% discrepancy between the actual vote count and the exit polls. Again, if this were a third world country, we would say, which of course the U.S. now virtually is a third world country, according to the U.N.'s most recent <laughs> study from 2018. But in any case, if this were a third world country, the USAID would call for some sort of intervention, maybe even military intervention to reestablish democratic rule. Well, which has happened in the past, right? So All the time. Again, the, the, the claims against Bolivia, and I think it's worth pointing out, which turned out to be untrue, led to a coup in Bolivia uh, against Morales, who we know now fairly won the election there, and the new self-declared president that the U.S. now recognizes, her party got 4% of the vote in the election. 4%. Right. But no, so something is rotten in Denmark. And, and what's as disturbing as the actual discrepancies are is the fact that no one's reporting on this in the mainstream press yeah i um i I don't even really hear much reporting in the mainstream press about other types of voter irregularities for example the long lines and the people who may have been discouraged from voting or they just had to leave and go to work and these things aren't being reported I do understand that uh, the Sanders campaign has filed a lawsuit on behalf of what they say are about a half million disenfranchised voters in California. Yes. So, as you mentioned, there were reports of incredibly long lines, particularly in minority districts in Texas, in California, and in Michigan. In fact, I saw a social media post by a a young African-American woman at a campus in Michigan who said there are incredibly long lines near her campus, which again dissuaded young people from voting, which of course people are wondering, where are the young people? Well, I guess a lot of them were queuing in line. In addition, Greg Palast, who's a great journalist who's really devoted recent years in uncovering election misdeeds in the U.S. reported that at least half a million 
Bernie Sanders supporters in California were disenfranchised by the ballots, the mail-in ballots that were sent to them, which had no, uh, they had every election that was happening that day except the presidential one. They didn't even have a list of the president, uh, presidential candidates you could vote for. Oh, wow. You had to, in order, and this went to people who were independents, for example. You can cross-vote in California, meaning you don't have to be a registered Democrat to vote. Okay. But in, in what the Democratic Party did is to prevent, again, people who would be inclined to vote for Sanders, uh, to prevent them from voting, you had to ask for a special ballot if you were cross-voting. People weren't told this, so they got the the ballot sent to them, which didn't have even a choice for he who wanted to be the presidential candidate. So that happened. Palace, and you can go to his website, gregpalace.com, estimates that about half a million Sanders supporters were disenfranchised through this means. Well, you're a human rights attorney, and also, as I mentioned earlier, you wrote this book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia how the CIA and Deep State have conspired to vilify Russia. And here in D.C., the Democratic Party has spent the past two years on this whole Russia gate, claiming that there was some conspiracy of Trump, of course, to conspire with Russia to manipulate the 2016 election. There have been other charges about Russia specifically, saying that they interfere to sow discord and create no confidence in the American system. But as a voter, I can't think of more that has discouraged me about the American system than what I've seen so far in 2020, starting with the debacle in Iowa and hearing about all these voting discrepancies now. So I don't know if you just want to comment on that. No, I do want to comment on it. So first of all, the claims against Russia, I believe, and I believe to this day, have always been farcical. If you really look behind the claims, first of all, Mueller found no collusion between Trump and Russia. Let's start there. But second, the claims are weak. We're talking literally something like under $50,000 in social media ads that they claim Russia supported in advance of the 2016 uh, election. They claim that Russia hacked the DNC Computer, which exposed, of course, the fact that Hillary Clinton stole the Democratic primary from Bernie Sanders. And again, I think based on weak evidence. But if that's all you have against Russia, that is pretty weak tea. And they continue to make similar claims now saying that, of course, Russia is supporting Bernie Sanders. And one of the more laughable ones, but I just heard it on NPR, this claim, was that Sputnik Radio, which I've been on many times, is uh, spreading Russia propaganda in support of Sanders, which is just ridiculous. It is a Russia-sponsored radio program, but I know the people who run, like Loud and Clear, they're allowed to say what they want. It's not propaganda. People like me go on there. I'm not uh, a Russian asset of, of any kind. So it's just silly that it's claimed to be propaganda, that this is uh, Russian-sponsored material when, of course, it's called Sputnik Radio. I don't know how they could be any more explicit about who they're being supported by. If it were called Apollo 11 Moon Landing Radio, maybe that would be different. 
Moreover, one of the more laughable claims is that Sputnik Radio in the U.S. helped to get Donald Trump elected. And what's hilarious about that claim is Sputnik Radio did not even start broadcasting in the U.S. until early 2017. That is, after the 2016 elections. So this is all tempest in a teapot. And again, the things we're talking about, potential voter fraud in the U.S., uh, unquestionable acts of trying to disenfranchise voter, particularly minority voters, uh, cases again, that Greg Pallast has exposed of, of a million voters in 2016 being wrongly taken off of voter rolls. That is a real threat to our democracy. Those are homegrown threats. Instead, because we don't want to face the fact that we have no functioning democracy in this country, and by the way, I'm quoting Jimmy Carter in saying that, who said we no longer have a functioning democracy. Instead of facing that fact, we blame Russia for our woes. What for? And what they allege, of course, is that somehow Russia is drumming up racial tensions and drumming up class divisions. Well, I'm sorry. We're one of the most class divided nations in the world in terms of inequality, and in terms of racial divisions, those are things that were created even before the founding of the republic with slavery and with the genocide of, of indigenous peoples. To say that we need Russia to do that, again, it's absurd. And the fact that smart, intelligent, educated people, some of whom are friends of mine, believe that Russia is somehow a problem in our uh, democratic functioning, it's just, it's baffling to me. Okay, well, um, you're an attorney, and I know that you have to make presentations and you have to convince judges and juries that your case is correct and I just wanted to as a last because I have to wrap up I wanted to get your reaction to the performance of Biden on the stage and him being chosen by the Democratic elites to carry their banner going forward against Trump I mean having watched the debates I can't believe that they're going to actually prop up Biden to go against Trump no, I think it, it, well, it shows a few things. I mean, to me, what it shows is the Democratic Party, the institution, and the DNC are willing to lose to Trump. They'd rather lose to Trump than have Bernie Sanders be their candidate. And why do I say that? Because Biden appears incapable of winning an election against Donald Trump. As most of us who are rational thinkers are seeing in the news and social media, we see these clips of Biden. He is clearly suffering from some form of dementia. He is not capable to be president. This is going to be exposed as this campaign goes on. They're trying to hide him now, of course, because they know that every time he opens his mouth, he proves that he has you know, cognitive problems. But at some point, they won't be able to hide it uh, from the American people, and the Democratic Party will lose to Donald Trump. But they are willing to take that risk because they would rather lose to Trump than have someone, a moderate social Democrat like Bernie Sanders, who's going to do some decent things for the American people, which means taxing the rich a bit, 
they would rather prevent him from being their candidate and from being president. And I think that that is what people should be concerned about. I'm actually going to play uh, some of those clips of Biden recently. I'm going to play the clip. There's look a little, a little montage where at the end he can't remember like the Constitution. Tomorrow's Superstar Tuesday. And I want to thank you all. I tell you what, I'm rushing ahead, aren't I? 150 million people have been killed since 2007 when Bernie voted to exempt the gun manufacturers from liability. It would put 720 million back, million women back in the workforce. Nobody should be in jail for a nonviolent crime. You had people like Margaret Thatcher, excuse me, you had people like the, the former chairman and leader of the party in, in Germany. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts. Think about it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the goal. You know the, you know the thing. So that was kind of a little montage of just some of the, I don't know if you want to call them gaffes or lack of kind of clarity from Biden. And on Sunday, Bernie Sanders is set to debate Joe Biden. There have been calls by some of the Democratic Party to call off the debate to try to frame it so that uh, I guess the commentators, the the questioners, the journalists, corporate journalists can continue to kind of skewer Bernie with questions. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. But I suppose you'll also be watching just to see how Biden does. Absolutely, uh, and already. You know, they're trying to give Biden a huge advantage by allowing the candidates to sit, getting, you know, advance look at the questions, you know, because they know that Biden going toe to toe with Bernie in a standard debate, yeah, he would wilt. And so they're trying to soften that for Biden's. But we'll see even with those advantages how he is able to do. OK, well, we'll be watching also. Uh, I've been speaking with Dan Kovalik. He's a human rights and labor lawyer, peace activist, and author of several books, including his latest No More War, and the critically acclaimed The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh, and he joined us from Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included Kendrick Lamar Feel, Funkadelic, One Nation Under a Groove, Gil Scott Heron, Who'll Pay Reparations for My Soul. And our theme music is Jimi Hendrix Voodoo Child. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Oh,